overwhelmed hospitals. Murder rates soared. I keep hearing bad news. Border crisis. More than 40 people dead. Amidst all that, it's easy to miss the good news. Welcome to American Optimist. This new podcast features good things that are coming. Today I'm going to introduce you to some close friends, the innovators and thinkers behind a lot of great things going on in our country. Joe Lonsdale started lots of companies. Now on his podcast, he interviews innovators like Sal Churi. He develops 3D printed houses, right? It looks like a tube of toothpaste squirting out uh, concrete, and in 24 hours they can put up a house. If he can get past the regulations. There's zoning, there is international building and fire code. It's actually impossible to do 3D printing of homes with modern technology because government regulation is making it impossible. It just infuriates me when I see these wonderful new things, and we can't have them because of regulations that don't matter. They'd probably have twice as big an economy if we didn't have bad regulations. If innovators get past the regulators, we'll get a lot of cool things. People predicted flying cars for decades. Now it may actually happen. My friend Paul co-founded Pinterest, which you may have heard of. The Pinterest founder is Paul Ciara. After doing that and you know becoming a billionaire and really smart guy, in his 30s, he became really passionate about airplanes and flight and what's newly possible there. We can do what uh, everyone else thinks is impossible. Now Ciara's company has developed something like a flying car. He calls it an air taxi. It's about 100 times quieter than a helicopter, and it goes about 200 miles on a charge. So it's much safer, much quieter. The idea is to use this as a commuting vehicle. I'm pretty excited as we start to scale this out. All these people are your close friends? This is a fun thing, uh, John, about being a venture capitalist is when you're building these big companies, you get to know a lot of interesting people. Traffic is soul destroying. He's also friends with Elon Musk, who's been working on a faster way to travel by going underground. He built this tunnel in Las Vegas. Tunnels is what I'm obsessed with right now. But it's hard to get them past the bureaucrats' endless rules. That's why digging tunnels now often costs more and takes much longer than it used to, even though construction equipment is much better than it used to be. So the best thing that government can do is just get out of the way. When Lon still interviews builders, they say, well, the EPA is going to insist that you do these studies that take four or five years, and you have to do the soil samples, and you have to check about the archaeology. You know, there's all this nonsense you have to go through, and it's almost like they delight in delaying you. Sorry, he's busy right now. Oh, uh, well, well, can I reschedule? Looks like the only other day he has open is March 10th. Does that work, sir? Thankfully, in new fields like neurotechnology, Regulators often don't know enough to stop innovation. A company named Neuralink has invented technology that lets this monkey named Pager play this old video game, Pong, just by using his mind. The reason Neuralink works is because it's recording and decoding electrical signals from the brain. Pager still moves the joystick out of habit, but as you can see, it's unplugged. He's controlling the cursor entirely with decoded neural activity. This Neuralink technology will soon help paralyzed people do many more things. There are now drugs on the market that are curing people. Rick Klausner's excited about other medical innovation. It's really a revolution. His company's designed a blood test for cancer, but he can't sell it yet because regulators won't let him merge with a company that sells such things. This could be saving over a thousand lives a month right now by detecting early cancers. And unfortunately, the, the, the FTC is blocking that. Maureen Hillenmeyer is developing ways to turn fungi into drugs that fight cancer. And how long is it going to take to get some of these to market to help people? Yeah, I mean, it can take 10 years to get a drug to market. Does it need to be 10 years? 
it definitely does not need to be 10 years. I think a competition of ideas is very important here. If I were in charge of the federal government, and maybe when I am in charge of the federal government in the future, what I'm going to do is have the FDA compete against itself and have multiple competing agencies. It's also helpful to have competition between states. You used to work in San Francisco. What happens? It's, it's really sad. You get California just run really terribly. It's ranked second to the worst for small businesses. People are just bailing. There's a mass exodus out of California right now. So you left. I want to raise my family in a place where there's a tolerant culture that allows different views. And you don't have to be attacked if you don't agree with the far left. When people can move easily, stupid policies can more easily be avoided. It's another reason to be optimistic. We're living in one of the most exciting times to be living in. And, and, the, and the, the quality of life we have, even during COVID, is so much higher than anything humanity experienced. And it's only going to get better. I'm glad you watched this video. If you enjoyed it, please remember to subscribe and hit the notification bell to make sure you get the next one. Why does the state of Louisiana have the right to stop me for doing what I love to do? Ursula Newell Davis has worked with special needs kids for 20 years. Take some breaths and think about how can I really say how I'm feeling. She helped kids like Kamal, who never made friends because he couldn't communicate. She helped teach me how to talk to people. Before Ursula started working with Kamal and his siblings, his mother says, I thought it was the end of the world. But with Ursula. She explained to me things that I didn't understand about my kids, and it allowed me to go back into the community and work. Ursula helped many families like hers. Now she wants to help more kids by doing short-term respite work. Giving a parent a backup. Someone that can go in and teach their child a different skill. Ursula has college and master's degrees, plus a social work license. But Louisiana still won't let her do respite work. You have these skills. You could help people. What do you think's going on with these regulators that they won't let you? Louisiana want to limit how many agencies they have to regulate. Why? That makes it easy for the state. Easy for the state? What is this law? Lawyer Anastasia Bowden of the Pacific Legal Foundation explains in Louisiana. Entrepreneurs in the healthcare space have to prove that they're needed before starting up. She says that's unconstitutional and she's helping Ursula sue the state. Louisiana gives you no clue about how to prove you're needed. Of course, that would be difficult for even the best entrepreneurs. Nobody can prove with any certainty that yeah, they're needed. Yeah, I couldn't prove I'm needed. Yeah, the only way to find out is to open up your doors and try. But Ursula wasn't allowed to try. She gave the regulators what they demanded. She rented office space paid fees, wrote seven pages about why her work is needed. But Louisiana decided that wasn't good enough. I mean, this is crazy. Special needs kids need lots of help. And every year, Louisiana turns down most of the applicants. Yeah, 75% of their applicants, because they say those people are unneeded. The health department says there's good reason for that. Licensing and regulating is a resource-intensive process. This law helps limit the burden on regulators. Imagine if the government argued that it didn't have enough money to administer driver's license exams. That's just not a legitimate excuse that the government doesn't have enough money to administer people's constitutional rights. Officials wouldn't answer our emails or calls. So my producer went to their 
quite elegant offices to try to speak with someone who'd explain their decisions. The security guard tried to find one of the regulators. But they weren't answering. Later, we got an email saying, we'd be happy to work on providing information. But weeks later, they still haven't. I shouldn't be turned down because the state of Louisiana do not want to do their job. 39 states have laws that say to open certain businesses, you must prove you're needed first. Because Kentucky says that to ambulance services, it's extra dangerous to get sick or hurt in Kentucky. People waiting hours for medical transportation. Other places apply the restriction to movers and hospitals. But Louisiana is the only state that applies it to respite care. Sure enough. Consumers in Louisiana are less satisfied with their care. It might be easier for the government, but that's not benefiting consumers. But if the laws don't benefit consumers, why do they stay on the books? We have hospital associations, medical associations that are giving money. They don't want the competition. Well, of course not. But the result is to deprive people of economic opportunity and to make care worse for the people who are consuming it. That's their job. Like, it's your job to regulate these services so you're gonna stop me from making money? Louisiana has denied Ursula her dream because it contends that it knows what people in Louisiana want and need. It can't possibly know what every Louisianan wants and needs. Thanks for watching this video. If you enjoyed it, remember to subscribe and hit the notification bell to make sure you get the next ones. What's this long line in New York City? People waiting for a Broadway show? No, they're waiting in line to use a public toilet in a park. People want to use this toilet because it's clean. Attendants clean it all the time. 30 something times a day. When I hear the words public bathroom, yeah. I have a bad feeling. A lot of people say that. For instance, this one lady was out there and she was like, I don't want to go in there. So I said, come, and I took her in. And when I took her in, she was like, oh my God. This bathroom's nice only because it's in a different kind of park, one managed privately by this man. 37 years ago, Dan Biederman persuaded city politicians to let him run this park. He got money from nearby businesses and tried innovative things like playing classical music in the bathrooms. It's just another of the elements along with flowers and the recessed lighting and the artwork that makes people think they're going to be safe there. Safe's an issue because this park's in the middle of the city. And crime rose in New York as police made fewer arrests. But there's little crime here. Crime thrives in dark corners. And this park's filled with people and the businesses that pay for the park. Thank you. A park is supposed to just be public, not all this business. You can't, in the current state of things, have passive space, as we call it. There are too many people circulating who are violent or emotionally disturbed. To discourage that, he fills his park with activities. Free ice skating, ping pong, juggling lessons, yoga classes, movie nights, and concerts. When lots of people use a park, crime is less of a threat. You still have homeless people, I imagine, coming here. As long as they follow the rules, we treat them as any other visitors. He does have trouble with some drug users. 
This guy just takes his clothes off, throws it on the floor. People on K2 tend to take their clothes off. What do you do when he takes his clothes off? Our guards are well trained to handle such incidents. They guide people like that out of the park. For the most part, people comply. Biederman didn't want to hire armed guards. Instead, he hires large men who walk around in uniforms. The fact that people just see us, that's good enough. It makes them feel safe. Can't smoke in the park, all right? Here you go. Thank you. Thank you, guys. No, it's all right. Nine times out of ten, they listen. The result is a park that's really nice. 12 million people come here every year. And none of this costs the taxpayer a penny. Not only does it not cost them a penny, but the increased real estate taxes paid by the surrounding buildings, it's 33 million a year. Why can't governments do this? They could do all of this. But they don't. They do at times. There are things I could point to that somehow government got done. Conservatory Garden, you know it in Central Park. Nice job. But Central Park is largely run by private charity, one I happen to work with. Before we started managing the park, the government let this happen. Governments rarely spend much effort on routine tasks like maintenance and trash management. A typical thing for parks departments to do is uh, take old oil drums, take the top off them and use them as trash cans. Oil drums are really ugly. So what does that say to the public? He installed trash cans like these. They signify that somebody cares. It takes a lot of those little things to make a park safe and appealing. This is an accumulation of that kind of detail, about 20, 30, 40 things like that. Plants are really well laid out by our horticulturist and well maintained. And of course, there's that bathroom. One of my first Stossel TV videos was a report on this Parks Department bathroom that cost, get this, $2 million. The city parks commissioner wasn't even bothered by that. Two million was a good deal. But you can buy whole houses for in that neighborhood for less than what you spent on this bathroom. I hear that point often, and if you look at the material that we use compared to a home, these are very, very durable material. Yet Bryant Park's much nicer bathroom is just as durable, but it costs much less. Government work is slowed by civil service rules, and this city's politicians happily pay high union wages. This is a city that does believe strongly in labor, and they want to make sure that people get paid a prevailing wage. When government does things, everything costs more and is less well-maintained. Today, that $2 million bathroom is missing a sink. The moral, whenever possible, let the private sector do it. Yeah, I'll see you, brother. All right. Hope you enjoyed this video. Please click that button to help us make more. Socialism, Nazism, progressivism, isms have done so much damage, but people still believe in them. Here is an outline of all the systems of government. Matt Kibbe made this video about the deadly isms. At the bottom, you'll see the worst types of totalitarianism, national socialism, Marxism, communism. Far-right isms involve a lot of government control of the means of production. On the far left, you have socialism and Marxism and Maoism. 
All of these isms, we're told, are fundamentally different than those on the right, but when you think about it, they sort of feel the same. You still have government control of businesses and factories. There's no freedom of speech. There's no freedom of association. There's hardly any freedom at all. Pundits talk about these things in terms of right versus left. This phony left-right spectrum it creates two problems. First of all, it keeps us fighting with each other. When we otherwise might find common values, we might find common ground, we might agree on the rules that hold civil society together. In truth, this whole left-right thing, it's the wrong way to think about political philosophy. Now, many Americans say, I'm not left or right, I'm in the middle. I like bipartisanship. Trouble is, when Republicans and Democrats agree, that usually means they've agreed to spend more of your money. That's what the politicians mean when they say, we're meeting in the middle. This celebrated middle of the road, where Republicans collude with Democrats to say, bail out Wall Street, this can't be where the good stuff comes from, can it? No, most of the good stuff happens outside politics. It comes from millions of free people working together voluntarily. America's been spared totalitarianism and the other worst isms of the world. Capitalism is mostly good because it's voluntary. But it's not if it's crony capitalism, crapitalism, corporatism. Corporatism, this is big business in cahoots with big government. Fixing prices, raising costs, screwing the competition. This is pretty much where we are today. We got to big government corporatism with the help of experts, technocrats, people who say, we don't have any isms, we just want to do what works. I am not an ideologue. I'm not. Technocratic progressivism, like espoused by Barack Obama and his cohorts, is still an ism. We'll get to progressivism in this series. Yes, this is a series on different forms of government. The isms of the left and the right, but also the alternative. We're gonna talk about liberty. We're gonna talk about people cooperating. We're gonna talk about entrepreneurship and all of the really cool things that happen when people are left free. Kibbe's bottom line? I'll be on your side, as long as you don't hurt people and you don't take their stuff. That's a political philosophy to get behind. Folks! The president says he has a mandate. The people of this nation have spoken. That means his government can do all sorts of good things. We can ban assault weapons. Gun controls on the agenda. And many progressives also want to outlaw hate speech. Hate speech mm. is fundamentally at odds with the Constitution. And above all, they'll spend much more of your money. Without creating an inflation problem. Sounds great, except those policies were just tried in Venezuela. Hugo Chavez thrilled American celebrities by embracing not just socialism, but the very ideas they'd advocated. This is you and uh, Hugo Chavez. <laughs> he, says, he's, he says, help me write my speech. He is one of the most important forces we've had on this planet. You have to be blind to actually believe that. Andres Gilarte is one of the thousands of Venezuelans who protested socialist rule. Here he is with his friends. They risked their lives to protest. Undeterred by security forces, participants flood the streets of Caracas. 
It was like a war, actually. And you're running from bullets and you're running from tear gas. The government killed hundreds of protesters. Yet the protests continued for months because those very policies that American celebrities loved created horrible hardships. We can't take it anymore. Now even basic protest is often illegal because Venezuela passed a hate speech law. The law bans Venezuelans from spreading violent or hateful content through TV, radio, or social media platforms. Yet that's exactly what half the Democrats in America now want. Free speech is protected, hate speech is not protected. A ban on hate speech may sound good, but the problem is... The ruling party, they decide what hate speech is. In America, some politicians in the ruling party also want to add four new justices to the Supreme Court. A 13-member Supreme Court. Chavez did pack his Supreme Court. They changed it from 20 people to 32 people. And the court has never ruled against him. After that, no. Venezuela also passed gun control laws, something else America's ruling party would like to do. But in Venezuela, people discovered that Taking people's guns also makes it easier for the government to come to your home and take your property. See how it actually happens in Venezuela. You're just in your shop selling uh, selling shoes, and some government officer arrives and say, we're going to shut down your business. That will be completely different if that business owner had a gun. But the government would just come in with bigger guns. If we actually had a culture like you have here in the U.S., it will have been incredibly difficult. And the restrictions on guns didn't even reduce crime. In fact, Venezuela's murder rate rose. These laws never work. Citizens don't have guns, but the criminals have the bigger guns. The most important lesson from Venezuela is probably the danger and the idea that governments can fund everything they want to do by simply printing more money. The federal government, it can never run out of money. It never has to worry about finding the money in order to be able to spend. There is no financial limit. More spending won't create inflation, we're told. It'll do the opposite. Driving down prices, not raising prices. There's a new movement in America that we could just print more money and it won't cause problems, won't cause inflation, and it'll just stimulate. Well, of course, you know, that that's how economy works. You just print money because money comes out, comes out from the trees. Venezuela printed that money and spent it on programs they said would help the poor. His supporters say that Chavez is the country's first president to genuinely care about the lower class. But the poor were the people hurt most by the inflation that followed. The cost of most basic goods has soared. The oil-rich country's inflation rate at 270%. Inflation expected to hit 700% this year. 400,000%. 1 million percent. Inflation's up in the United States, too, and the direction looks ugly. But inflation here hasn't exploded the way it did in Venezuela. It doesn't mean that it can happen. That, unfortunately, is true. Remember, Venezuela was once very rich. We were the richest economy in Latin America. We were the promised land. People from America were going to Venezuela to build businesses. But now, Venezuelans try to escape. Carrying their lives on their backs. Everything can fall to the ground really quickly. Inflation is can it's like a cancer. You never know when it's going to hit you. The idea that massive government spending and all those other feel-good policies will work in America when they've already failed elsewhere, that's a dangerous myth. Thanks for watching this video. If you enjoyed it, learned something from it, please remember to subscribe and hit the notification bell. 
that'll make sure you get the next one. A lawsuit against Harvard. The outcome could affect the future of affirmative action. Harvard has been sued for illegally discriminating against Asian Americans. The legal action forced the school to make its admissions data public for the first time. That did reveal that Asian applicants must score 22 points higher on the SAT than whites, 63 points higher than blacks. Nevertheless, Harvard denies it discriminates against Asian Americans or any other group. Harvard says race is just one factor among many. That is just a lie. Lee Cheng supports the students suing the school. Harvard didn't just use race as one of many factors. It was the determinative factor. Harvard says many Americans of Asian descent don't get in because they score lower in personal attributes. Harvard rated Asian Americans on personality, right, on subjective factors like likability and courage lower. This is because Asian Americans are boring little grade grubbers. They just focus on getting good grades and good test scores. I can categorically say that's bullshit. If you only look at grades and test scores, it looks like a lot of discrimination against Asians. Economist Harry Holzer, who went to Harvard, defends the school. Asians are not interesting. They don't have interesting qualities. But the personal ratings reflect a wide range of, of, of characteristics. Now, it's possible. It's possible that some of that is anti-Asian bias, but you certainly can't prove that. You know, I don't think they're discriminating against Asians, but I assume they're discriminating for blacks and Latinos because there's been a history of discrimination. I wouldn't label it discrimination. I would label it as leveling the playing field. I mean, is that discrimination? No, no, it's, it's, it's race conscious assistance. And when you have a long history of discrimination based on race, you have to take race into account. Hasn't Harvard, like lots of other schools, been deceitful about what they're doing? They basically lied for years. I, I don't know if they were like, they were putting their own spin. This case is expected to get to the Supreme Court and the new court may ban racial preferences. If that happens, you'll see a large increase in the white student population, uh, and you see a precipitous decline in the black and Latino student population, about 50%. 50% decline in those of color. Harvard would be a less interesting place if that happens. There are many, many different ways to achieve diversity without discriminating against Asian Americans. The reality is that race-focused affirmative action helps rich people. 70% of the students of every ethnic group at Harvard come from the top 20% of family, of family income. I think it's okay that some of the minorities admitted under affirmative action come from higher income families. Race in America matters at any level of income. The groups that are harmed the most are actually poor whites and poor Asians. Chang is passionate about ending racial preferences because when he was in the eighth grade, he applied to San Francisco's Lowell High School. I was just shocked when I found out I had to score higher than kids of any other ethnic group because I'd just taken civics. I was just taught in civics and history that in America, everybody was supposed to be equal under the law. Lowell High School excels in everything from music to math. Chang got into that high school, but... The kids who are negatively affected were the kids of the dishwashers and the seamstresses who lived in Chinatown, who were very poor. Cheng later went to Harvard. He became a lawyer and successfully sued San Francisco over its race-based preferences. So we got rid of the quotas in San Francisco. You Asians, we white people, we're doing well in America. 
we don't need extra help, but some other groups do, and there's a history of nasty discrimination against them. Isn't it Harvard's job to try to make up for some of that? The right path out of the history of discrimination against individuals based on race is not more discrimination based on race. I have three kids, and I'll be damned if I'm going to not fight very, very hard to make sure that they don't get treated as second-class citizens in the land in which they were born. You've heard that universities are politically correct, and they are, sometimes in ridiculous ways. University of Tennessee students were told, don't use him or her, use gender-neutral words like her and zer. What? No justice! No peace! But what's worse is the new twist. Some campus leftists say some viewpoints must never even be heard. It's gotten so bad that even family-friendly comics like Jerry Seinfeld say, Don't go near colleges. They're so PC. An opinion echoed by Chris Rock, who said he stopped playing colleges because of their unwillingness to offend anybody. An opinion echoed even by the president, who told students, if you hear something you don't like, you should have an argument with them. But you shouldn't silence them by saying you can't come because, you know, my I'm too sensitive. All I hear is that colleges are awful places for free speech. The reason you feel that this is such a big deal is because the media exaggerates how important it is. Leftist professor Jeremy Mayer. If you're Jerry Seinfeld sitting there on your millions and you can't handle a 19-year-old gay rights activist calling you a homophobe, you know, put on your big boy pants, Jerry. Get over it. It's just a criticism. Criticism's fine. But these days, most campus criticism is targeted only at certain people. What's offensive is opposing same-sex marriage. What's offensive is being pro-life. Columnist Kirsten Powers leans left. But now she says the left is silencing people. Offensive speech on campuses is having a non-liberal view and a real intolerance of being able to hear from other people. The purpose of the college speech laws is that the students are young, they're vulnerable, and they need to be protected from nasty ideas. Instead of people saying, well, I disagree with what you say because you're wrong about that, they don't say it. They just say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm offended, you, uh, and, and it could traumatize me. Oh, the little snowflakes, they can't handle it. And what I always say is like, no, these are not fragile snowflakes. These people are intimidators. They intimidated Brandeis University into uninviting Ayan Hirsi Ali. If you want to send your kid to a place where they're protected from reality, then you send them to a daycare center. Brandeis planned to give Ali an honorary degree for defending Muslim women against violence. But when some students called her anti-Islam comments hate speech, Brandeis canceled her invitation and revoked her degree. A woman who has stood up to a decade's worth of explicit death threats is somehow too hot for Brandeis to handle. Some schools, to protect sensitive students, offer them a special room called a safe space. Run and hide, run and hide. We've got to get to the safe space before the rhetorical bombs start falling. This is insanity. If you want like a space to like decompress after this event, um, there's going to be a space in Wilder. The safe space is where cultures go to die. The safe space, right? Their little, little place they set up with the teddy bears and the Crayola. She's not kidding. A columnist reports that the safe space at Brown was a room equipped with cookies, coloring books, and a video of frolicking puppies. We take it that they're fully formed adults when it comes to 
uh, having sex of any particular variety they want to have. But somehow they're not allowed to be exposed to a speaker who might uh, discomfort them a little. There were people having their heads chopped off uh, all over the Middle East. There were Christians having their churches burned down. But in the most pampered, indulgent society in human history, young people feel threatened uh, because Christina Hoff Summers has been invited to give a speech. Summers is a feminist professor who's skeptical of the claim that there's an epidemic of campus sexual assault. Her speeches were disrupted. She's wanting to debate, she's wanting to talk about issues, but they don't want to. She's harming them by expressing a different view. They treat disagreement as an assault against them, and they are justified in silencing people, um, and even in one case, attacking someone. She's a professor, and she steals signs. This video begins right after the attack. At UC Santa Barbara, a feminist studies professor and her students snatch this sign from a 16-year-old pro-life demonstrator. When the sign owner complains, the professor smiles and her students tell the girl. You better guide your other signs or we'll take it really The professor admits she stole the sign and says, I may be a thief, but you're a terrorist. The professor told a police officer she was justified in her attack because the graphic abortion signs were disturbing and offensive. She shouldn't have had to see this, and so therefore she was justified in harassing the students. Hey, don't touch me! She cut the sign up and in the process attacked a 16-year-old pro-life demonstrator who was trying to get the sign back. What did the college do to the professor? Nothing. He still works there. Well, tenure's a powerful thing. At his former college... Get off this campus. We don't want you here. I once experienced the new campus attitude. After a male student was drummed off campus for having drunken sex with a female student, I thought I'd ask students, where's the new line between sexual consent and rape? Rape is not TV hype! They drowned me out. Rape is not TV hype! Come on, everybody, louder! I couldn't even get a question out. They pulled out my microphone cord. What happened to you, John, was wrong. But let's remember what a college is. 18 to 21-year-old people are being exposed to ideas, and some of them get incredibly passionate about them, and they make bad mistakes. I don't think that it's very often that you see the heckler's veto. We're liberals. We're supposed to like free speech. The heckler's veto even hit Bill Maher. So he was invited to speak on the anniversary of the free speech movement at Berkeley. But some students tried to ban him because he's criticized Islam. I guess they don't teach irony in college anymore. <laughs> At Dixie State University, these libertarian students were told they could not post these flyers criticizing both Presidents Obama and Bush. Don't colleges need rules to keep people civil? Hate speech isn't nice. Um, are you always nice? <laughs> Dixie State told them provocative speech must be limited to this small free speech zone. So this little triangle we have right here? At least here, they thought students would be free to write their opinions on this poster. But this cop shows up. Somebody asked him if he was looking for hate speech, to which he said yes. And then he went over to our table, kind of perused the table, looking through all our books. This guy in the cowboy hat was going to write something, but he was scared off by the police officer. Well, it made us mad. You can't limit free speech. Isn't that what it says? in the Constitution? Students can say whatever they want in the free speech zone. <laughs> First of all, the country is a free speech zone. You don't get to decide what other people are going to say or what other people are going to hear. That is not the way this country operates, and it certainly shouldn't be how campuses operate. 